Welcome to Living Freely Podcast, where our mission is to provide you with down-to-earth topics on mental wellness and realistic tips for living life more balanced and achieving optimal mental health. Living Freely is brought to you by Norfolk Public Libraries in Virginia and hosted by myself, Rachel Ann Dine, licensed professional counselor and passionate about providing you with strategies and up-to-date information on mental health. Join in weekly for a brand new episode of Living Freely, helping you live well and be well one podcast episode at a time. Hi, and welcome back to Living Freely. I'm so happy that you have joined in today because we're talking about something that is extremely near and dear to my heart. Of course, I'm very passionate about it, but we are going to be talking about what happens in your first therapy appointment. Last season, I talked about signs that it may be time to reach out and go seek out a therapist, as well as what all the different letters, credentials behind a therapist, and different medical providers' names mean so that you can get linked up with the correct and accurate person that you need to. So definitely go check out that episode if you want even more information. But for the sake of today, I wanted to create this episode because maybe you've been on the fence about starting individual counseling. And this year, though, has been extremely difficult. It has been on your mind. You are right on that precipice of potentially making an appointment, but the nerves are there, which is completely appropriate, very valid. Making that first therapy appointment, sometimes that is the hardest step is to go ahead and email the provider or call the provider's office. It can be a scary thing, especially if you are a planner and kind of like to know what to expect. Not knowing what happens in the first therapy appointment can be a little bit unnerving. So I'm going to break it all down today and then I'll round out today's episode with a couple different signs and things to look for in your therapist. So without further ado, I I also want to just impress upon you the importance of and just the importance of our mental health first and foremost, but then also if you've been feeling the effects of the past year, you are not alone. Of course, I love my statistics because I think it just really legitimizes, not that we need to make this legitimate, but sometimes those hard and fast numbers can just really put things into perspective. And in July of 2020, Kaiser did a massive research study and found that as many as 36% of adults experienced difficulty sleeping, eating, increases in alcohol consumption or substance use, and even worsening chronic conditions due to worry and stress just over the coronavirus. And that they, this doesn't even, this is not even linked to all of the other stressors that could potentially be going on in someone, someone's life, or just all the things that we're seeing in the news as of recently. So I, we know that the pandemic has caused quite the mental health crises and difficulties to kind of escalate. In comparison of January to June of 2019 to January 2021, from 2000, in 2019, in the months between January and June of 2019, 
11% of adults reported symptoms of anxiety disorder or depressive disorder versus in January of 2021, this number was 41%. So this is a major increase about almost four times what it was in 2019. Now, I don't have that sample size of individuals who were assessed, but this is still extremely telling. And I think that it points to the larger the larger impact that the pandemic has had on so many of us. So if you have noticed an increase in anxiety, depression, irritability, or trouble sleeping, or just that chronic stress, or maybe you have an autoimmune disorder that you have noticed the flare-ups have been worsening, you're not alone. This has been across the board, and now is an excellent time to reach out to find a provider. Real quick, let me just give you those resources that I always like to throw out there. We've got www.psychologytoday.com, which is a therapist directory. You can put in your zip code. You can screen out for your health insurance. You can read biographies, see photos. Very similar to www.psychologytoday is www.goodtherapy.org. There is also another excellent resource that is called Open Path Collective. And this one is ideal if you do not have health insurance benefits and you are having to pay for your therapy out of pocket. The therapists who are signed up for Open Path Collective offer therapeutic services at a sliding scale and reduced fee rate. The last time I checked, I believe it was between $30 and $60 per session because their goal is to make therapy accessible for everyone. And then last but not least, if you do still have health insurance benefits intact, I think sometimes people maybe don't realize that you can use your benefits for therapy. So sometimes it's calling your health insurance provider's plan to find out what providers are in network for your for your plan. So, all right, you're on the cusp of potentially making this appointment, but you're curious what goes on in this therapeutic set- setting. Is it, you know, what is it going to be like? So the first thing is when you reach out to find a provider, you're probably going to have an option because right now so many providers are online only. So providing virtual telemedicine, telehealth sessions or your session may be in person. This is just something also for you to keep in mind what your preference is. I will just really quickly give a shout out because over the course of the pandemic, my business went through some changes and I decided to go fully virtual because I got so much great feedback from my clientele and just I felt like it was so effective, so convenient, no more commuting into an office, both for me and the individuals who I serve. So the online setting, most providers are going to have a HIPAA compliant. Well, I'm speaking for myself. I have a HIPAA compliant. It is completely secure telemedicine, super easy to use online portal meeting room. And almost all of my colleagues are still doing online therapy and utilizing a similar platform that's really easy. It can be accessed through your smartphone, an iPad, your laptop, 
really, really easy to use. And some insurance insurance plans are even covering telephone sessions. So that would be the first thing to keep in mind. What's your preference? Do you want to go in person or do you want to be online? Most clinicians are offering both, but some clinicians are online only. So something to think about. So whatever you decide when you schedule that appointment, this should be brought to your attention where the meeting is going to take place. It's something for even you to ask about if there are questions on your on your part. But the session is booked. You're not quite sure what to expect, but you found a time that works and you show up. And one of the first things that your therapist is going to do is go over briefly what is called the informed consent. This is the the limits of confidentiality, potentially your provider's late cancel or no-show policy, some other Privacy Act paperwork, things of that nature. And these are also going to be documents that you will have to sign off on prior to starting the therapeutic session or if it's an in-person session and the clinician is having paper records, then they may give you that small little stack of paperwork to fill out prior to the session begins. It's always my preference for folks to complete that before the session starts because I like to use that full 50 minutes, 55 minutes to kind of get into the meat of what has brought you into the therapeutic setting. So they'll go over the informed consent and the limits of confidentiality. So anything that's discussed in the therapeutic setting stays between you and your provider with a couple different exceptions, such as if you report the current abuse of a child or a handicapped adult, if you're actively suicidal or homicidal, or in the event your therapeutic notes and records that your provider maintains get subpoenaed to a court of law, or your therapist has to testify on your behalf. In those situations, sometimes confidentiality has to be broken. And so I just like to put that out there. This should be gone gone over more in depth in your session. So for the sake of today, I won't go too much further into detail about it. But those are the most frequent, um, those are the limits of confidentiality. And in terms of a late cancel and no-show policy, I think sometimes, I think most providers this day and age, I know my dentist, they just had sent me an email because I had a, an appointment with them. And you know, I saw on their email please cancel within 48 hours or else we do have this fee in place. So I do think that a lot of providers have some kind of late cancel or no-show policy in place. Therapy is no exception. You'll probably find and even have to sign off on something that states your understanding. Therapists are a little bit different than medical doctors in terms of, you know, most MDs will sometimes see 20-plus patients a day, whereas the therapeutic setting and the therapeutic appointment, which typically ranges between 45 and 55 minutes, it really would make it very difficult for a therapist to see 20 clients in a day. That You know, that would be a good 20 hours or so. So we reserve those time spots specifically for you 
You know, oftentimes, sometimes doctors will double book appointments in preparation that maybe somebody cancels or no-shows. Whereas most therapists that I know, and I certainly never double book. So when somebody makes an appointment with me, that's their time. I've reserved it specifically for them. And without 24 to 48 hours notice, it's hard to reach out to somebody else who may be on a waiting list or on a cancellation list to have them meet at that time. So that's usually why that's in place. Um, And I'm just sharing that so that there's no surprises in case your provider brings that up with you in that first session. So once they get through through all of that, then it, you know that's kind of what I consider the housekeeping portion of the therapeutic setting. They may also, if you're using health insurance benefits, tell you what your copay is or let you know you know they're going to file the claim and then let you know what that is, yada yada. But for the sake of this first session, the next stage is typically a lot of assessment. So that's where your therapist is going to ask you all about your symptoms and what is happening in the here and now that brought you in, whether it's heightened anxiety, whether it's ongoing sadness, whether you're having difficult family interactions and that's causing you some grief or some pain. This is where the exploration really starts. And this has always been the part where I've had folks ask me, I'm not quite sure what to say here. And that's when, you know, your therapist should be a guide and should have some pretty pointed questions to kind of get that ball rolling. You don't have to feel like you need to know exactly what to say or do in a therapy session. Your therapist is trained. They will be able to adequately assess and ask you the questions to start to formulate a treatment plan to gain a better understanding of who you are. Now, kind of rewinding just a little bit, back when I talked about the informed consent and how that is a piece of therapy, part of that informed consent is the intake questionnaire or the intake assessment where it's kind of like when you go to the doctor's office and you fill out, you know, what's your complaint? Let's say you have a head cold and you put down your symptoms and they ask you, well, what are you on any medications? Do you have any family history of this or that? or they have the long checklist of all the different, you know, physical ailments that you could present with, asthma, high blood pressure, you get what I'm saying, and you check them off. Well, the intake questionnaire is similar to that, but it's going to be a little bit more catered to the mental health setting. So they may ask you, have you seen a therapist before? Do you have prior mental health diagnoses? What medications are you on? Who do you live with? things of that nature, I encourage you, and they'll ask, you know, maybe family history of mental health issues. I encourage you to be very honest and as comprehensive as you can, because this is a really great way for your therapist to get to know you even before the session starts. That's one of the reasons why I also like to have my clients fill out that information prior to coming in because then I go back and I review it before I even meet with them. That way I already have a good idea. Oh, okay, this is why this person's coming to see me. This is maybe we'll go in this direction. Um, I already can start to think of questions that I want to ask. So be as honest and open as you feel comfortable being in the more information that you can provide. It is very helpful. And a sign of a good therapist is one who's 
read over the paperwork. Um, and uh, so I'll get to that in a little bit, but that's always a good a good sign. When you show up, you know that you filled out the information and then your your new provider kind of asks you questions about what you have written down. So in this assessment portion where your therapist, you know, it's really kind of that getting to know you as well, kind of building rapport, that, that kind of piece of things. This is where your new provider, and to, for the sake of today, provi- me saying provider is interchangeable with providers, interchangeable with therapists. So your provider may even start to kind of talk to you about a diagnosis or what they think is happening with you. So for my, for an example, for me, you know, I specialize in anxiety. And so a lot of times we'll talk about what does anxiety look like? What are the criteria of anxiety? What is my kind of loose formulation on what's going on? Is it anxiety? Is it depression? Um, bipolar disorder, you know, and then we kind of go from there. But I I think it's important for your provider to talk to you about that. And so this will probably not come as a big surprise. I think that most people know that they are experiencing worries or trouble sleeping or sadness or elevated mood in the case of manic episode with bipolar disorder. You know, I I really do believe most people are their own best experts, and that's you included listening into this episode today. And so most of the time, hearing what that diagnosis is, it can almost incite a sense of relief. Um, That's always been my experience. It's almost in the same vein of feeling like you have leg pain and you just cannot figure it out. And that leg pain has just persisted for six, eight months. You've Googled, you've tried different stretches, but you just cannot figure it out. And so finally, you go get an x-ray and the, you know, radiologist tells you, oh, you have a fractured kneecap. Now, I don't know if you can have a fractured kneecap, but for the sake of this example, you get where I'm going. And then you're almost able to breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, it's a fractured kneecap. And then from there, you can get the cast that you need. Then you can go to physical therapy. Therapy is the same. So sometimes hearing that diagnosis, I just encourage you to go in with an open mind. And in a lot of ways, it can cause that sense of relief. Like, okay, now I know officially I do have generalized anxiety disorder, which then leads me to the next part of this first therapy session where treatment planning will happen. And treatment planning is a lot like, as I was mentioning, going to the physical therapist for different stretches and exercises to strengthen that knee. Your treatment planning will be all about what different things you and your provider, your therapist, are going to work on. So this is where your therapist may ask you, you know, out of everything that we've talked about today, what do you feel is kind of the biggest presenting problem? What where what do you want to target in therapy? And you can name out a couple different things. You can name out one major life occurrence happening. From there, they'll ask you, well, let's go ahead. Let's create a goal. And this is where it should be collaborative, where the two of you are kind of really working together to decide 
what is the goal for treatment? And this is where you can really weigh in. You know, I keep going back to anxiety because that's just where, that's my my familiar, that's my go-to. So maybe if you do have anxiety and you're listening, maybe a goal could be, I want to learn how to better manage anxiety or I want to decrease episodes of panic down to only once a week versus three times a week or whatever the case could be. There's a whole lot when it comes to setting goals, you know, making them smart, measurable, realistic, achievable, smart, you know, the smart goals, which I did do a podcast episode about that with New Year Content You. I did that last year. I think it was the last episode in December. So if you want to learn how to even if you don't go to therapy, just learn how to set some smart goals, then that's a great episode to check out. But yes, yeah, so the, tr- the treatment planning phase is very important because this will help you and your provider kind of guide what kind of work you are going to be doing. The piece I want to I put in here, this is also a great time for your therapist to even tell you a little bit more about what their style of therapy is, if they feel like they are going to be a good match for you. This is something that's vital because some therapeutic specialties definitely lend a hand to specific clinical diagnoses much better than others do. So my approach tends to be really psychodynamic. If somebody has anxiety, I like to really get into the root cause of that and explore. And then we tack on some cognitive behavioral therapy strategies, you know, but I'm very talk therapy based, whereas somebody else may be a DBT certified therapist, which is very heavily skills-based. That psychodynamic portion where you're going and analyzing family dynamics and things of that nature, it's there, but it's not going to be as ever-present in the session as someone like my myself is, you know, where I'm, I'm much more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic. So This is important because your therapist is going to be well-trained and well-versed to hopefully guide you in that right direction. So if you're not a good candidate for what they specialize in, believe it or not, a sign of a good therapist is to give you a great referral to one of their colleagues, to somebody, or to somebody else in the field that they know, who they know is going to be a much better fit. You would, uh, you know, one thing I always think and say sometimes is that you wouldn't go to a heart doctor for a knee issue. And it's the same, not all therapists are created equal in terms of our clinical focus and expertise. I know that some people could better be served by somebody who is a certified substance abuse counselor versus myself who is primarily focused on anxiety management. We all kind of have some clinical background. You know, I've done definitely done substance abuse work and but in terms of the research I currently stay really up to date on, it is so geared towards anxiety management. So hopefully that makes sense because I never want you to feel um, discouraged if a provider says, you know, based upon what you're telling me, I really think that you would specialize from this form of therapy that I'm not certified in and I this is in your best interest. I could see where that would almost be 
discouraging, you know, like I've said, kind of discouraging. But it's really, to me, that's helpful. That means that they are actually, they're doing their job. They're putting you with the person who professionally they feel is going to be able to best help you. Okay, so then of course, in that first therapy session, then typically you will start to talk about the scheduling piece of things. This is where it's also collaborative. You know, how often do you want to come to therapy? But even more so than that, logically speaking, logistically, I should say, how frequently can you come? Because the one caveat statement I tell my clients is that making an appointment for therapy, I want this to not be a stressful process. So let's figure out something that's going to work for you. So if you, you know, I think about if you have children or, you know, a busy work schedule or whatever the case could be, it may not be realistic to come once a week. And there's no right size fits all for everyone. You may have a good friend of yours who goes to therapy once a week, whereas you may say, "Mm, you know, I feel like I just need to check in periodically. And so you may start at every two weeks and then or every three weeks. So really talk to your therapist if you just have no clue and are not sure how often you should come. You can easily divert the question back to your provider and, you know, ask them what's your take. And they should, based upon that treatment planning, that assessment, they should have a nice rounded number in their head. I think that you would really benefit by coming every two weeks, at least every three weeks, or in some cases, any kind of crisis type things, any kind of high, high anxiety, panic disorder, high levels of depression, those are probably going to you know, be once a week sessions. Um, But again, the scheduling piece is important, especially in that first therapy session. Last but not least, I have to mention this, that oftentimes the payment will happen. So a lot of providers require that the payment is due at time of service, at the end of the session, or even some require and ask that it be paid right from the beginning. And so this is just another piece to kind of keep in mind that, you know, payment will have to take place. So really this first therapy session first therapy session, it gives you a great kind of way to start to get to know the provider who you have selected. I want to share with you, there was a body of research that was done that said that between one-sixth of a second and six seconds, you're able to pick up whether or not you like someone. And I think that this is so profound because it doesn't take long to form a first impression. Picking up on somebody's energy, picking up on their vibe, if you will, just deciding whether or not you like them. And you're allowed to, if you don't get a good first impression and you really don't think that they are going to be a good fit for you, you don't have to go back. You can find somebody else who is potentially a better match. Now, if you do have a personality type where you feel really distrustful of a lot of people, then or, you know, are just not quite sure what to think, or you're on the fence, then sometimes you can try that that therapist again and see, okay, was that first session just a little awkward because I was nervous? Was I new? Were they nervous? But, you know, and so I encourage you, maybe don't 
don't give up too quickly. But then there's also those other instances where if you flat out know I did not enjoy this, I did not really care for this individual, you know, like I said, based upon that research, it only takes a couple seconds for somebody to really decide whether or not they they really like someone. You are always, always allowed to try somebody else. So I just have to empower you with that. With that being said, I want to give you a couple quick things to look for in a therapist. This is kind of the bonus little piece of this episode. By and large, one of the first and foremost and most important things to look for in your therapist is somebody who's non-judgmental. So if you're sharing something about your life, I don't want that that provider to say, to sit there and be listening to you and make comments like, ooh, you know, or rude noises or things of that nature. They should, you should be met with unconditional positive regard. You know, anytime um, a provider says, well, why would you do that? You know, and it comes across as just flat out judgmental, this is not a good sign. You know, your therapist may question you. They may do some appropriate challenging of some negative thought processes that you may have going on or even potentially continuing to engage in an unhealthy relationship or unhealthy behaviors. They may question and say, well, what's causing this to continue to happen? Or how do you feel about what's going on? That's so much different than being flat out judgmental. So your therapist, your provider should be non-judgmental. If you are feeling like you have to hide something from your counselor and it's to the point that when you go to your therapy session, you don't share what's really been happening, this is maybe indicative of a comfort level problem that potentially you don't feel fully comfortable with that provider. It could also be, you know, indicative that maybe you are slow to trust. And if that's the case, that's kind of a different thing. But if you're specifically scared of your therapist reaction to what you are about to share, this is maybe a red flag that this provider may not be the best person for you. Because even if you feel nervous, you know, You may comment in the session, I am really scared to tell you this, but then you go ahead and you tell that provider anyways because you trust them and you know that they care about you. That's beautiful. That's kind of how therapy is designed. You know, maybe you messed up. Maybe you did make a little mistake or, you know, started dating somebody again who you've been trying to not date anymore, whatever the case could be. And you're a little nervous because it's something you and your provider have worked on for a while. Then you know, you may feel nervous bringing that up. But if that anxiety is so rooted in feeling like you're going to be judged, then we've got a little problem here in terms of the therapist that you're seeing. So I won't belabor this point. I feel like I've definitely hashed in on it. But non-judgmental demeanor is going to be of utmost importance. You can even kind of start to figure that out, feel that out in that first therapy session. The next one, and I've kind of touched on this before, but deep down, you like them. You like your therapist. At the end of the day, research shows time and time again that one of the most important parts of therapy is the therapeutic relationship. It's how well you get along with your therapist. It's a different dynamic than really many providers because you're spending a solid chunk of time with your therapist. 
45 minutes to 55 minutes. Some some therapists even hold, you know, kind of 90-minute like intensive sessions depending on what's going on with you. That's a long time. If you think about it, any other provider, the dentist maybe comes to check on you for 10 minutes and, you know, you may get a positive interaction. Your medical doctor, that may be a short and sweet appointment as well, 15, maybe 20 minutes tops. Even many psychiatrists, that's a very short medication management appointment, 10, 15 minutes, and then the appointment's over. So we have to make sure that you fully like your therapist and that you trust them. So the next piece in what to look for in your therapist, you can also, you know, siphon this one out in that first session is, is this person easy to talk to? Do they... Do they actively, you know, do they, are they easy for you to share with? Let's put it that way. This is what we call the therapeutic rapport or even the therapeutic alliance. If you've ever been in therapy before, then you know what the therapeutic alliance is. It's basically feeling that your therapist is an ally for you. Even though they may challenge you, there may be some tough conversations that are had, you know at the end of the day, they care about you. To me, that's a sign that you're doing something right as a therapist is if you challenge your client and they say, you know what, I appreciate you going there today because that's why I come to you. That's how therapy should be, which brings me to my next point is that you receive strategies for your growth. It's not just a complete venting session. There's some meat to going over some techniques that you can try, that you can do to try to change behavior that you desire to change. Venting is very cathartic. I think I I touched on this in the episode where I talked about, you know, choosing a provider and all the different, um, the letters and acronyms behind a provider's name. I talked about this briefly then, but I'll touch on it real quick. So venting is cathartic. It's a release of emotions, but typically it is not the same long-lasting experience as is when you receive strategies so that you're more equipped next time the situ- a situation in life presents itself, you're much more equipped to manage that situation. Now, the thing about venting, though, that can be helpful is potentially if it's productive venting where your therapist is asking you questions and they're, you know, challenging and asking you things that are causing you to think about something differently, this can be really key because then after the therapeutic session, you may replay those snippets in your brain that then start to cause behavior change. But for the most part, if you're just venting and you never receive any kind of evidence-based techniques, you know, from CBT or solution-focused counseling, or you and your therapist aren't continuing to set healthy goals, then this may be something to talk to your provider about, especially if you really like them, or it may be a sign that we need to try somebody else. Okay. So the next one is if we we always have to make sure, and this is something to look for in your provider, to make sure that your therapist is listening to you and they are engaged in the session. 
To me, it's a major no-no for your provider to be on their cell phone, for them to continue to pause and take breaks or anything of that nature or, you know, try to I'm trying to think of other other things that could potentially happen or I don't know, you see them break out their iPad or you're on an online session and you feel like they're looking at a different browser screen or something of that nature. They're not even focused completely on you. This is a red flag. We need somebody who is actively listening and you can tell that they're actively listening because maybe they reflect back to you something that you've already shared. Maybe they're asking you pointed questions that are causing you to think more deeply about something, but they're really highly engaged in the session. Last but not least, the other thing to look for in a provider, in a therapist, is that they remember what you tell them for the most part. (laughs) So, you know, they may forget a name or two or something of that nature. Or if you shared your, you know, childhood address and something unique about what those numbers meant, they may not remember those exact numbers, but they remember that that childhood address was very special to you for this reason. If you find that from week to week, you go in and you feel like you kind of have to start over from the bottom to share your journey and your story with your therapist, then this is potentially a red flag. I know that, you know, this is me not making an excuse, but I know that uh, potentially it could be an indication of a therapist being burnt out if they're no longer remembering things. But ultimately, it's on your provider to take really good care of themselves so that they show up and are able to be highly engaged in the session. So that's just something to really keep in mind. The the thing about therapy is it's not a friendship type session. There won't be a trading of stories back and forth or the therapist hopefully won't be talking all about themselves in a session. If they do, this is definitely something to look out for because at the end of the day, therapy is your time. It's your time to debrief what has happened over the course of whatever time period, you know, whether it be childhood or a recent trauma or whatever the case could be, it's your time to talk about you. And so if you notice that the conversation continues to be steered towards something that's going on in your therapist's life, then it's either something to address with that individual or potentially a sign that we need to try somebody else. So it's not friendship. And the reason I started out by saying that is because a lot of times in your friendship conversations, I don't know about you, but it's a lot of trading stories back and forth. Each of you are sharing, you know, so-and-so, your friend had a, a stressful day you also had a stressful day. You're not trying to one up, but you're saying, yes, I get it. This is ugh, this is what happened to me today. I can't believe it. You know, and you're kind of going back and forth and validating each other. Whereas in therapy, you present whatever's causing you that stress or that anxiety and your therapist isn't going to say, oh yeah, you know, I'm scared of uh, plane rides too. And this is why, because when I was this age, this happened and it turns into a long story. Mm-mm. They're going to They're going to dive in more deeply, you know, where do you think that fear comes from? Have you tried any coping strategies? That kind of thing. So that's also something else to really keep in mind in terms of the difference between the therapeutic relationship and a friendship. 
So I hope that this has been helpful today. I hope that it has potentially eased any worries, anxiety, or even fears about going to your first therapy appointment. Maybe this is a sign that you should make an appointment if you've been on the fence about it. And just know you are certainly not alone. That's why I definitely wanted to put those statistics out there. I mean, to go from 11% in 2019 of adults experiencing anxiety and depression to 41% in 2021, I'm sure that that doesn't necessarily come as a surprise for you listening because if you're anything like me, you may have felt it yourself and just kind of seen just in the news or in your family, in your friend groups, how people are feeling the stress, feeling that depression, feeling the anxiety. So you're certainly not alone. You are always, always encouraged to reach out. There's, there's, It's always a good time for therapy. Even if you feel like you're in a decent place, you just want to work on some personal growth and development things. Or, you know, you're feeling anxiety, you're feeling low-grade depression. It doesn't feel debilitating. Therapy can be preventative. So it's I, I'm just a fan. I think you can probably tell from listening to this episode today. But I am really glad that you've been here. So glad that you've joined in. And I just cannot wait to be back next week for another episode of Living Freely. As always, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week wherever you are, a wonderful weekend, and be well. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Living Freely Podcast today. As always, the information in this episode is not intended to diagnose or treat. It is highly recommended to find a provider in your area or by going to www.psychologytoday.com to find a therapist in your area. If you have enjoyed this episode, please don't hesitate to rate and review our podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, so that we are able to be seen by more people wanting to get information on mental health and wellness. Thanks so much again for tuning in. We'll look forward to seeing you next week for an all new episode. Be well. Mm -hmm.